Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tollett. Alexa, we are recording at nine in the morning, uh-huh. uh, a time where like, I feel like I ought to still be asleep. I'm, I'm, I'm not even drinking. What, <laughs> what is going on here? Yeah, well, actually, there's, there's no real good reason for us to be recording at nine in the morning other than that I'm sort of on vacation. Um, so there's no like real time, time difference reason. Um, but yeah, right now I'm in Vermont visiting um, with Megan's family. And so I wanted to like get this recording out of the way in the morning so I can like go like hike up a mountain or kayak on a river or something later today. <laughs> So you're taking time out of your vacation in order to give our listeners what they want. Is that, That's is that correct. right? And despite the fact that we're recording at nine in the morning, um, I did like toy with the idea of drinking a beer. And I'm not going to because the idea of doing that right now feels like very aversive to me. But I did go to the Burlington Farmer's Market on Saturday and I picked up a beer from Green Empire Brewing and I tried it at the Farmer's Market so I can report back to listeners about fruited sour number five run club oh so you're just gonna plug the beer without drinking it uh yeah (laughs) the can is in the fridge there's a very good chance i'll drink it later today um but i'm not doing the 9 a.m i i think that's fair and we'll just call that a binding contract and i will check in with you later today (laughs) to make sure you've drunk the beer but can, can we have your tasting notes on it now please yeah so um so the can describes it as having notes of plum, pomegranate, and pink guava. Um, it's very uh, a very pink beer. Um, and at, actually, I tasted that beer. Well, it wasn't 9 in the morning, but it could have been like 11 or 12. Um, and it was like super fruity and refreshing. I really liked it. Wow. Okay. Two thumbs up on the beer. Um, tell me a little bit about what Vermont is like. It's a You have a very Vermont-looking door in, in, in the background there in your video. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Vermont is like a magical place that it's sort of like hard to believe people actually live here. So when you like go for a drive anywhere, you pass these like rolling green mountainous hills and then there's like rivers and lakes everywhere. Um, and all the houses sort of like look uh, similar. So they have these sort of like slatted fronts and they're all like white or like uh, light green or like pastel blue. And there's like beautiful wildflowers everywhere. I was just learning about lupins. So we were like, we're driving along and there was just a field full of lupins. Um, we went for, uh, uh, we went kayaking yesterday to Green River Reserve, I think is it, it's called. Um, and we saw like loons um, that were like, <laughs> um, like sitting on their eggs. Um, and I'm also like 70% sure I saw a beaver. I saw some kind of like furry creature swimming around and I think it was holding a stick. Um, so yeah, that's what Vermont is like. It it could have been a beaver. It could have just been a really big rat. Who's to say? (laughs) A big rat in Vermont? A giant rat that moved up. Um, well, that sounds disgustingly wholesome. Does that, do you, do you worry sometimes that it's just like too wholesome? Yeah, well, I think about the possibility of moving to Vermont often um, because it seems like such a paradise. Um, And I do sometimes feel like it's actually Megan and I were just talking about this yesterday, the idea that um, it feels so magical here and that if you moved here, then um, maybe it would like lose that magic and you'd become jaded. You would just feel like this is what everyday life is like. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, maybe that's not exactly what you're asking. Maybe you're asking, like, is it nauseatingly wholesome? Um, well, no, I'm more like, you know, have you seen the movie Midsommar? No. Okay. Well, I, I don't want to ruin it. I'm not going to give any plot points, but it's this beautiful place. And then they have a very dark secret. And so right. whenever I hear these sorts of stories about the wholesomeness, I'm like, yeah, but you know, maybe they're also ritualistically murdering newcomers, you know? Yeah, that does. It does seem like it could be like Megan's parents' house seems like it could be like the first scene in a horror movie, like very idyllic, you know? The, like river running in the background and stuff. Maybe I should like go look through like the boxes that they have in their basement and see if I can open <laughs> just like full of bones. <laughs> <laughs> you stay out of there. That's that's my advice. Well, no, that sounds lovely. Um, and I'm I'm a little envious. Uh, well, yeah, I was looking at your background, and it does honestly, it does not seem as idyllic as mine. No, no, I'm I'm back in my closet. Um, uh-huh. So yeah, not not nearly as idyllic. I I got back to Canada Wednesday. I had a little bit of a COVID related annoyance, which is that I was exposed. Like I was working together with a friend right before I flew, and then like the day that I flew, when I was at Heathrow, she texted me and was like, "Oh, I tested positive today." Damn. And yeah, so I I got back and I was like. My uh, girlfriend and I share a pretty small place, and that would have been bad to expose her. So I, we were like kind of scrambling around, like what what should I do? So I, I stayed at a friend's place for a few nights. They were out of town to make sure that I wasn't uh, contagious. I know, right? It's terrible. Yeah. COVID just makes everything hard. It really does. <laughs> did you um, did you bring any sausage back? No, you know, so we had a listener email us, uh, a very uh, kind guy uh, who works for, I think, for the U.S. side, like the customs inspection. And he was mm-hmm. like, yeah, definitely mm-hmm. don't try and smuggle through anything. You know, they'll get you. There'll be uh-huh. terrible fines. I didn't bring any sausage. Uh, my girlfriend requested a kilo of figs, um, and I, I did bring those. But I looked up on the Canadian website to make sure that it was permitted to bring figs. And in fact, dried fruits are permitted. So I was not in violation of any... Uh, any laws or regulations there? Very good. I was picturing um, non-dried figs, and I was like, I cannot believe they let you bring those. <laughs> right, but just like crawling with foreign insects and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, sir. I just have a bag, check bag full of fresh fruit. I'm sure that's cool, right? <laughs> I was really thinking, you know, they have those like, those ham legs, those, you know, the um, the jamon legs. Yeah, and I, yeah. I was, yeah, just, I was thinking, wow, would one of those fit in my bag? But but then there wouldn't be room for anything else. And also, I think my girlfriend might object if I'm like, I want to hang this giant pig leg up above our kitchen counter. So I do like that as a decorating idea. Right? Um, we recently found out that we have water in our kitchen, like water under the, the tiles in our kitchen. Um, so basically, we were having to like got the kitchen probably so i've been considering um decor ideas and like looking at um instagram accounts and stuff and sometimes i'm like so like a lot of these things like these accounts are like really beautiful and creative and stuff like that but they start to like look the same after you look at them for a while but i have not seen anyone with like a giant ham leg in their kitchen so yeah well while you're at it while you're tearing up all the tile why not put in a ham leg is all i'm saying (laughs) this is really this is this is the moment to do it if you're not going to do it now when are you ever going to do it (laughs) yep yep all right so what are we actually talking about today alexa i think we're talking about um the many labs project and i noticed that you uh titled our notes many many labs is that a uh, 50 cent reference (laughs) no 
obviously is, not. Am I right about that? Many, many men? Is that? <gasps> I have no idea. I mean, you would know Aww. better than I. You're Disappointed. in touch with the kids, and I'm not. We discussed this. You're a, you're, you're a woman of the people. No, no, no. You're you're in touch with what the youths are doing, and I'm like completely out of touch. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not a reference. It's an accidental reference, maybe. Okay. Yeah. 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 So I wanted to talk about the mini labs because uh, the last mini labs, which is confusingly mini labs four, even though there's five mini labs, uh, just came out recently. And I think Brian Nosek tweeted something about, you know, what a long road it's been with the many, many labs. I was thinking about like how how much the world has changed since the first many labs came out in, I believe it was 2014 for the first one. Um, and just like what a massive amount of work has gone into these mm-hmm. and like how they've really like changed the tenor of the field. Like I, I think, and we should get into this, but uh, these projects are the first ones that, that I was aware of that did this massive multi-site kind of replication type of work. And that's something that's now, I think, quite a bit more mainstream. Um, so it was funny for me to look back at these papers and think about how much things have changed since 2014. Um, and I thought it could be fun to just chat about each of them and what they did and you know how they affected our lives. Yeah, I love that idea. Um, are we going to, are we going to talk about them in the order of the many labs numbers or in the order of the years that they came out? Oof. Uh, well, I have them organized in the document in, uh, (laughs) by, by number. So I think like maybe we go, we go that way. I assume that's, that's the order in which they were started. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, I think different ones just took longer to complete or longer the publication process or whatever. So, so I, well, I guess I'd like to start with like overall, like, have you been involved in any of these? Have you like, has this intersected with your research at all? Yeah. So my only involvement in many labs is not direct. Um, so by the most that I've interacted with these projects is using them as stimuli, actually. Um, so my uh, student, Alex McDermott, and I um, and a few other people in my lab uh, did a study and actually outside of my lab as well, um, did a study where we looked at um, how psychologists respond to replication evidence. Um, so we sort of took advantage of the fact that at the time, many labs two, and then I think I always forget actually, what's the other one? Um, and many labs five were sort of underway and people didn't know the results of them. Um, so we asked people to tell us like what their belief in the original effects were. And then we came back um, a year or two later and asked them um, to tell us their updated belief in the findings um, after we showed them the replication evidence from uh, ML2 and ML5. Um, so that's actually, I, I haven't collected any data for the many labs projects or anything like that. I haven't had a study that's been replicated, um, but we ended up looking fairly closely at the, the studies because we used them as stimuli in that project. Gotcha. Good. So it's like a belief updating kind of study? Exactly. Gotcha. I, okay. So it strikes me that we're assuming some knowledge of our listeners. So maybe yeah. like before we actually start talking about the the papers, we should back up and say what this is. Um, so uh, here's my understanding. Um, the Many Labs projects, uh, five separate papers. Um, each of those did large multi-site replications of for the most part, different effects, although one of the papers focused on just a single effect. Uh, and the the method here is something that, like I just 
mentioned a minute ago, is it's become kind of more standard in psychology is that a bunch of labs collaborate to collect data about some research question. So, you know, rather than, you know, Alexa runs something in her lab, I run something in my lab, we publish separate papers, you know, you collaborate and, you know, you might have like tens of labs uh, or uh, I don't think this is true in the many labs, but in other multi-site replications, even hundreds into the hundreds of labs collecting data uh, to target some specific effect or set of effects. And then at the end, you put all those data together and hopefully you're able to draw better conclusions than you would be able to if it's only one lab uh, running a study. Is that a fair description? Yeah, I think so. But I, I would say that they also have these sort of like very specific... Um, meta science goals, one of which is so, first of all, all of the many labs studies are replications. Um, so they all give us like some sense of the replicability of existing findings. So some of them do like a deep dive into a particular effect, and then some of them do sort of more of a survey of um, like a range of different um, sort of like widely cited effects. Um, and then also, uh, Several of them focus specifically on sources of variability and replication outcomes. So um, the first two many labs look at like sample and setting as a source of variability. So you might think, okay, well, a replication, um, if we're going to sort of draw inferences about an original study based on the results of a replication, um, then we want to be confident that you know the sample the fact that the sample and the setting are different um isn't going to mean that we should expect totally different effects right so many labs one and many labs two look at like the extent to which um effects vary based on sample and setting um and then some of the other projects look at other potential sources of variability like whether an expert was involved in designing the um replication protocol and things like that um, so that, yeah, they also sort of, I would say that they examine the question of sort of, um, what does a replication mean? You know, how much can we use replication evidence to draw inferences about, you know, the existence of an effect or the likelihood that an original effect was a false positive? Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And one thing that I think that these, um, this series of papers has really contributed is like to look at these questions that, you know, maybe it's sort of like folklore and social psychology, for example, that like you shouldn't run studies at the end of the semester because right. the subjects are bad, right? Um, and so they did many labs to actually look at that, right? So like mm-hmm. on the one hand, it's a replication of a set of studies and that's useful in in and of itself. And then additionally, they're testing some other question that you might be curious about. Right. Um, yeah. So so maybe we we just sort of like go through them briefly in order. Um, so the first Many Labs paper, this came out in 2014. Oh, one last thing I wanted to say. These are all um, Brian Nosek students, I think. And the first author on each of them is either Rick Klein or Charlie uh, Ebersole. So I think those are the kind of the folks that were in, in charge of all of these. And that might be why, yeah, they're now... I think uh, Rick and Charlie have both moved on to other things and they're like, okay, the set of projects is done, mm-hmm. right? And that's why they're calling it, like, calling it after five. They're like, we did what we need to. No more many labs. It's oh all, God. it's finished. Just what a massive amount of I know, work. I know. I, I, I'm like the laziest grad student on earth next to these guys, right? I it's know, like, totally. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it's embarrassing. <laughs> right, so my hat is off uh, yeah. to these folks, right? Um, okay, so the the first one, so the first one largely focused just on we're going to 
try and replicate these 13, uh, the, the paper calls it classic and contemporary effects. Um, and they recruited 36 labs, about 6,300 total participants. One thing that's interesting about their effect selection is that um, it seemed like they were being really conservative in what they picked. Um, they they replicated 10 of the 13, which mm-hmm. is, you know, kind of a high percentage um, compared to some other, like, yeah. you know, choose some effects and try and replicate them. And I think that's because they were like, let's choose the things that are <laughs> we're, we're pretty confident are going to work. So it's stuff like, you know, anchoring is is one of them, I believe, mm-hmm. right? So it's stuff like, well, if you don't get that, then 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 you have a problem. Um, and so that I think that the primary contribution of this paper, as I see it, is just to like show that this is possible, right? We can do this big multi-lab thing. Um, we can have different labs collaborate to replicate these effects. And indeed, we get a lot of effects that do replicate, right? So it's right. not like, it's almost like validating that paradigm in a way. Totally. Like, yeah, yeah if they can't get anchoring. Concept. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. Um, but, you know, interestingly, the uh, the three that they didn't replicate, so one of those was money priming, uh-huh. where priming people with images of money makes them more, what is it supposed to do to them again? Um, oh, I actually don't remember. Um, um, system justification. It makes them more system justifying. Ah, uh, there you go. Yeah, right. And so that uh, failure to replicate prompted the original authors of the money priming paper to run more studies and to, I think the takeaway is, yeah, you know, currency priming actually doesn't do what we thought it did. Right. So, right, on, on the actual, like, research question there like it was really informative to have this big failure to replicate yeah right it's also really interesting to look back at these things from like 2014 when this paper was published and of course this project was started much earlier than that um and like the hindsight um bias is hard to ignore like so i'm looking at the the effects that sort of clearly didn't replicate in ml1 and it's uh, the money priming, and then flag priming influencing conservatism. So the idea being that if you prime people with the American flag, then they express more conservative views. And now, to me, th- th- those seem like a glaringly obvious, like these wouldn't replicate. But I don't know that I would have thought that in like 2011. Yeah. Um, certainly not when I was in grad school. Like I basically did studies assuming that those kinds of priming effects were real. Yeah, no, absolutely. So that flag priming study is actually uh, Travis Carter, who I overlapped with in grad school at Cornell, and Melissa Ferguson, who's now uh, at Yale, but who at the time was faculty then. And yeah, you know, we were doing this sort of stuff all the time and thought it was very plausible. It's yes. like, yeah, 100%. no, priming. <laughs> totally. It's like a found, foundational principle in right, social psychology. Right, 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 right. If priming mm-hmm. isn't real, then what are we even doing here? Yeah, basically all of our manipulations were based on priming. Yeah, like many yeah. of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now with our with our twenty twenty two eyes, we're like, oh yeah, you know, money priming, sure, like, right? Duh. Do you, do you notice? Like, have I missed it, or has that sort of priming research just completely gone away? Like, does it exist anymore? Not that not that I know of. I'm trying to think of like if it ever comes up for for me, like in reviewing or things like that. I I don't think I've seen a paper like that in quite a while. Yeah. Like in my like editing and reviewing, I haven't seen any paper that does something like that. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of remarkable. So I I guess one interpretation is, you know, it's just out of fashion and like people would like to be doing this sort of research, but you know, they're afraid that people are going to just reflexively disbelieve it. Mm -hmm. To me, the more plausible interpretation is you can't get these effects without p-hacking. 
right? If you try to do this without QRPs, it just <laughs> doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, that's my guess too. And I mean, I guess there's also like a sort of combined um, possibility, which is uh, that people no longer believe in these effects, so they don't bother researching them. By right. Why, why would you waste your time if you don't think it's going to work? Yeah. So there was something that I noticed when I was sort of like looking over the abstracts um, for the Many Labs project. And I noticed it first here in Many Labs 1. And then also you see like a similar conclusion in Many Labs 2. So both of them are looking at like sample and setting um, as a possible source of like heterogeneity in the effects that are observed. So um, basically the idea is that they're looking at, okay, well, how much does like the particular group of participants that you're using or even like the country that you're doing this in or the format that you're doing it in online versus in the lab, right? How much does that make a difference in the effect size that you observe? Um, and I think one of the reasons that the authors looked at this was at least my guess is that one of the reasons that people were curious about this was that at the time, this was sort of like the beginning of um, lots of replications being done. And a lot of people were dismissing replication findings, right? So usually the way that they were dismissed was, okay, there's something different about the, the way that this replication study was done from the original. So the fact that the replication failed doesn't really have any implications for the original, right? So people would talk about things like hidden moderators. Um, so, the, oh, the reason that you didn't get the effect in your replication was because you used a different group of participants or because you did it in a different country, um, or maybe you changed something subtle about the way that the study was done, like you did it online, but we did it, you know, with paper and pencil. And therefore, that doesn't mean that the original effect was a false positive. Um, there, it just means that, like, you sort of did it a bit wrong or maybe not even wrong, but like there's just there's a difference between the two um, samples or settings that can account for the difference. Um, and so they deliberately looked at sample and setting as a source of these kinds of differences. And I would say like in both many labs one and many labs two, they kind of conclude um, it doesn't really make that much difference, right? So in many labs one in the abstract, they say that replicabil or sorry, replicability is more dependent on the effect itself than on the sample and setting. Um, so maybe not directly saying sample and setting don't matter, um, but saying it has more to do with the effect than about sample and setting. Um, many labs too, they have a very similar conclusion. Um, and they also say that uh, exploratory comparisons revealed little heterogeneity between Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic cultures and less weird cultures, um, i.e. cultures with relatively high and low weirdness scores, respectively. Um so it kind of seems like the conclusion is um, that it doesn't really matter if you do your studies on a weird sample or not, um, which struck me as kind of odd because that seems like um, like a, maybe a dismissal of calls for um, having like more diverse samples and moving away from weird samples. Um, and I think the reason that those those conclusions are present in the studies is to make the point about um, sort of like rejecting hidden moderators as um, a way to explain away replication results. Um, so it strikes me as like sort of a tricky political line to to walk, right? Sort of claiming like you should trust replication studies, even if they're done in a different country. Um, but you don't also, to me, like 
I don't like the conclusion that from there you can say like, okay, it doesn't matter where you do your study. We can just do them all on college students in the U.S. and we can generalize to the global population. Yeah, it's interesting to see these the the whole set of papers as rhetorically being aimed at different criticisms of replication studies, right? Um, yeah. So, God, it seems like it really has must have to do with the specific effects that you're trying to replicate. Um, and then I'd say, like, also, yeah, how non-weird are the non-weird samples, right? Like, these are still mostly university students. Like, they're not going out and giving this to hunter-gatherers. So, yeah. yeah. right. Like, I was looking yeah. at, so in many labs, one, there are 36 samples. Um, 25 of them are from the U.S. Um, 11 are from other countries. And those other countries are Brazil, Czech Republic, Malaysia, Turkey. Two samples are from Canada. Two are from Poland. And then one from the U.K., one from the Netherlands and one from Italy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, obviously, going back to what we were saying earlier, these are, like, massive projects. It's a ton of work. I've never run a study where I've collected samples from all of these kinds of countries. Um, but then you also do still wonder, like, how, yeah, how weird is this um, overall sample? You know, how much um, how much variability are we really getting from, like, a typical um, American college sample? Um, yeah. 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 And to me, like the most accurate interpretation here is assuming that the default is if it doesn't replicate, it's probably because I ran it in the U S and you ran it in, I don't know, the UK or Germany. That seems wrong. Yeah. Right. But if you have a kind of principled a priori argument for why it ought to work in one culture and not another culture, that seems like credible to me. Like there must be many things that people think about differently depending on culture. It's just, yeah, I, I think really the uh, the target here is these folks who are like, well, you didn't replicate it because of something, something variability across sites and right yeah so my my understanding of the takeaway here is that they do sometimes find significant variation across sites so you know you can test for whether the variation in the effect size is larger than you would expect by chance across these sites Mm -hmm. there's different statistics that let you test that um but that that variation was more for the effects that replicated successfully Mm-hmm. rather than the ones that didn't, which makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. So to me, it makes sense that if this thing is truly a false positive, it's basically going to be a zero everywhere, mm-hmm. hence no variability. Mm-hmm. If this thing has does have some true effect in some populations, then you might expect, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have a bigger effect in some populations than in others. Right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and to add to like the, the like kinds of conclusions that you might or might not draw from this, I'd be curious what the authors would say, but I would, I would say that, um, yeah, you want to balance the, we should trust a replication study from a country that's different than the original, um, but not necessarily conclude like, okay, well, uh, I did this study on a UA students, um, within the U S and therefore it's likely true of people everywhere, right? Like that. That would be, I think, the yeah. wrong conclusion to draw. I, 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 I agree with that. That, that seems a little extreme to me. 
so Mini Labs 2, which is the one that specifically looks um, at variation and replicability, mm-hmm. um, that's the one that actually had one of my studies in it. And that's probably uh, my greatest personal involvement with any of the Mini Labs projects is that. Uh, that my study was included in many labs too. And I was also, I signed on as one of the replicating labs for that study, just because I was curious, like since they were replicating me anyway, I kind of wanted to see how that all worked. Uh, so cool. I, I, I am on the paper it is like one of my most highly cited papers, which seems a little bit like I should just kick that out. That shouldn't be contributing to the H index. Like all I did was like, uh, run a, run a script. But um, anyway, yes, my finding, which was in there, um, did not replicate or or it just barely, barely was significant in this enormous sample. So like for all practical purposes, it didn't replicate. Uh-huh. So th- I, I think this is like a great example of where um, these sorts of replication efforts are super useful. So here's the finding. Um, David Pizarro and I were interested in the relationship between disgust sensitivity and people's attitudes towards gay people, particularly gay men. The idea is if you're more disgust sensitive, you're more easily grossed out. Um, you're more negative towards gay people and gay men in particular. Um, and we had a study where we got that on the IAT already. And um, there's another uh, study that David had actually run for a different purpose where he happened to include a disgust sensitivity measure. And uh, so this wasn't like a planned analysis at all. Um, and the sample was not huge. I think it was like 40, 50, something like that, divided across two conditions. Um, and this study took advantage of um, something that we know to be true, which is that when people see doing something as a moral, they see doing that thing uh, as an unintended but foreseen side effect as more intentional. So the classic example of this is um, CEO implementing a new production process. His subordinate comes to him and says, hey, you know, this new production process is going to harm the environment. And the CEO says, I don't care at all about the environment. I just want to increase profits. And they implement the production process. Sure enough, the environment was harmed. And then you ask people, did the CEO do that intention, harm the environment intentionally? And by and large, they're like, yeah, absolutely. And now consider the opposite case. Uh, CEO is implementing a new production process. Assistant comes to him and says, hey, you know, uh, this is going to help the environment. And the CEO, again, says, you know, uh, the environment is irrelevant. I just want to maximize profits. And sure enough, they do the, they implement the process. Environment has helped. Did the CEO intentionally help the environment? People say no, right? So mm-hmm. the uh, moral uh, assessment that you have of the outcome uh, affects whether you think that people uh, – Put that uh, cause that outcome intentionally or not. Um, so we took advantage in the study of a kind of a similar thing, uh, where we had a scenario where there was a music video director um, that uh, was making a music video that would encourage uh, either gay men or just we said couples to French kiss in public. And uh, the director's assistant is like, hey, you know, I think this is going to cause, depending on the condition, one of these groups to French French kiss in public. Um, and the director says, I don't care at all about that. Um, I just want to like increase sales of the album. Sure enough, you know, the video was released causing either couples or gay men to French kiss in public. And then mm-hmm. uh, did the, the director intentionally cause this group to French kiss in public? Um, and so what we found... Um, is that the higher you are in disgust sensitivity, um, the more strongly you think that the director intentionally caused 
uh, gay men to French kiss in public, and that's stronger than the relationship for disgust sensitivity and causing just couples to French kiss in public. So the the logic there is like, if you're more disgust sensitive, you think that gay men French kissing in public is particularly bad, and that influences your intentionality to judgments. So that's mm-hmm. an interaction between the individual difference and the the manipulated variable, which is is it gay men or couples? So like, look, like small sample, individual difference not predicted a priori. And it's like, I think the interaction is actually pretty strong, but it's like, man, you just get like weird stuff with like these like fluky interactions and small samples, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, so they they ran the replication and it is it is just barely, barely there, but like P.03 in this like very large sample. So basically, it's not, basically the finding in the replication is, if you're more disgust sensitive, you in general think that causing people to French kiss in public, um, they, that the director did that more intentionally. That, that That's it. The right? main effect is there. Yeah, exactly. So they just yeah. don't like public French kissing in general. But yeah, it makes sense. You know, like people sure. are more disgust sensitive or more like kind of generally sexually conservative. And they're like, yeah, public French kissing, bad. But the interaction is like basically, basically not present. And it's like, yeah, you know, that does seem like an intuitive finding kind of a priori, right? And so that might be one that like didn't get questioned. It's not like money priming where somebody might have come along and been like, oh, we got to replicate that. Um, but it's something that obviously needed to be replicated. And the original finding was shaky and basically disappeared when when it was uh, done in a larger sample. So I think it's great that they did that. And I mean, I don't, I would, <laughs> I would not recommend that anybody like tries to make this study the basis of like a further, you know, set of set of studies because it like really does not seem like he can get it reliably. Interesting. Yeah. Do you like, what's your um, current stance on like the broader relationship between, I guess, like disgust sensitivity and like conservative views? Is that, is that still a thing? Yes. Yes, I, I do believe that that's real. Um, and we have that using a variety of measures in a variety of countries. It really seems to have to do with sexual conservatism. Um, uh-huh. And uh, because these kind of attitudes are all related to each other, at least in the US, that means people are like then also more conservative on fiscal matters because these like, especially if you're a more informed voter, they come as a package. Uh-huh. Um, but w- what we found really... Um, consistently cross-culturally is that people who are more sexually conservative, uh, they're more negative towards groups that practice non-traditional sex in various ways. So that can include gay people, but isn't limited to them. Um, Those people are more disgust sensitive. The effect isn't huge. Um, So we get an R usually that's in the like somewhere between 0.1 and 0.3, right? So Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, a lot of other variants there in in conservatism not explained by disgust sensitivity, right? Lots of people who are highly disgust sensitive, who are like quite liberal, uh, but you know it does seem to be statistically reliable and kind of consistent. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, so this this is from Many Labs Two, which is one of the um, sets of studies that we used as stimuli in our project. Um, so we asked psychologists to tell us how likely they thought it was that this effect was real, Um, which is like kind of a cool thing to maybe look back on now. Um, And these are these are psychologists like practicing psychologists, so grad students and upward. Um, And we found that that people in general, um, on average, thought that there was like a 65 percent chance that this the interaction effect in the original paper 
was like a real thing. Um, so people's intuitions were that that, that effect would replicate. Um, and yeah, it is sort of a unique study in that set of uh, many lab studies in that, yeah, it's so sort of on the cusp in terms of statistical significance. So like in that, in that project, we also um, basically we tried to calculate how much people should believe in the effect once they get the replication evidence. So we sort of combine the replication evidence and the original study um, and like calculate what people's Bayesian posterior should be. Um, and usually for studies that like sort of failed to replicate um, at like a heuristic level, the estimate is like almost zero, you know, because the many lab studies are so huge, the like amount of evidence is overwhelming. Um, but in the case of your specific study, it's like 6% or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> 6%. <laughs> <laughs> great, great. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I'm curious about this, actually, um, because this is something that comes up kind of across the Minilabs projects. It's sometimes the case that, let's say, the original finding is like you have a D of 0.7, some mm -hmm. um, experimental effect. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you collect thousands of uh, participants replicating that effect. When you put everything all together, you get a D of like 0.05 and it's just barely significant. Uh -huh. You're like, what do I do with that? Like, yeah, yeah technically replicate, but it's not, it kind of feels like we're not talking about the same thing anymore at that point. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We are on Twitter at fourbeerspod. You can also email us at fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Finally, our website is fourbeers.com. You can listen to any of our episodes there and drop us a line as well. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to rate and review us on 
Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. It just helps other people discover the show. Uh, Alexa, have I left anything out? That sounds good. Awesome. All right. So we we don't have beer chat, sadly. I'm still drinking water like the, like the piece <laughs> of shit I am. So, so I, I think we could just like dive right back in uh, to Many Labs 3, which is 2016. Um, so this... Mm-hmm. Uh, this one we've alluded to already tested whether uh, the quality of participant pools at universities uh, varies across the semester. And this is definitely a piece of like uh, conventional wisdom or maybe superstition that I encountered in grad school, which is you should run your studies early in the semester because like late semester participants are worse. They're the people who waited until the very end to get their experimental credits. Um, Just, for people who like might not understand how this usually works, um, at a university, typically you're either required or receive extra credit for doing experiments um, as part of your um, enrollment in big psychology classes. So the big psychology survey classes, which might have like hundreds or even thousands of students in them, depending on the semester, they uh, incentivize you in different ways to uh, do research studies. Um, and some kids are conscientious and I shouldn't say kids, that's condescending. Some students are conscientious. <laughs> I just feel myself getting older. You know, it's really, it's it's terrible. Um, some students are conscientious and do their experimental credits right away, right? Beginning of the semester. And some are less so, and then are scrambling around in the last week being like, shit, I have to do 10 studies, right? And so it seems kind of plausible that the people at the end are just not giving their all. I remember like learning about the results of many labs three and being shocked. Like yeah. I really thought that the time of semester would matter. Yeah. Yeah. So we had this conventional wisdom passed down that was like, don't run your studies in the last two weeks. You're going to get these students who like don't care, who are super stressed out and are just like trying to power through. Trying yeah. To they're just trying credits. to like get it done. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Seems totally, totally plausible. Doesn't it? Yes, it does. Apparently doesn't matter according to many last three, right? So, um, yeah, the, uh, yeah, they basically like specifically looked at whether time of the semester mattered in terms of the effects. And I guess what you would predict is that, um, if the time of the semester matters, um, you would just get bad data, right? Like, close to the end of the semester. Um, and so it would be, uh, you'd be less likely to sort of like see effects replicating and you also would probably, I guess, get more heterogeneity in these estimates. And um, and they didn't find evidence of that. So um, the, the takeaway I think is that it's okay to, to run your study in the last week of the semester and you'll still get data that's comparable to, to the um, data you would get earlier in the semester. Although they do, they do get this um, correlation, right, with uh, time of semester and conscientiousness, for instance, which is like what you would, that's the sort of like basis for that conventional wisdom, right, is that um, later in the semester, you're going to get the less conscientious students. But um, apparently those effects are pretty weak. And then uh, they don't sort of they aren't so powerful that it actually affects data quality. Yeah, they don't cash out in terms of like something replicates at the beginning of the semester, but not at the end. Right. Yeah. To me, this is an illustration of, you know, in the p-hacking, uh, underpowered studies world, 
results were just so noisy. And then so you develop these superstitions to explain, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's so true. Um, I I think that's really interesting because uh, as scientists, I think we just see ourselves as like immune to that kind of thing, right? Um, Like uh, we act as though our um, beliefs about these kinds of things are based on like scientific data. Um, But we're doing a lot of the same things that, you know, the same kinds of like superstitious things that that we accuse non-scientists of doing, right? Like it just feels plausible that things would change over the course of the semester. um, And we have this sort of like folk wisdom about it. And, you know, we pay attention to the times that that does happen and we ignore the times that it doesn't. And, um, yeah, maintain those beliefs. Yeah, it it is remarkable. You would think that before now, somebody would have thought to try and test some of this stuff empirically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Weird. Um, yeah, so that's all I have to say about yeah. th- three. Is there anything else you wanted to throw in there? No, I'm kind of excited to talk about many labs for um, so I'm like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Next. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. Do you want to explain many labs for? Yeah. So many labs for is um, one of the projects that focused on a specific effect. Um, so they looked at uh, a phenomenon known as mortality salience, um, and they describe mortality salience and um, the broader sort of theory of terror management theory within the paper. Um, so they say. Uh, terror management theory, commonly shortened to TMT, states that as humans evolved self-awareness, they also came to know that their death is inevitable. To avoid preoccupation with thoughts of death or feelings of meaninglessness, one must manage the potential terror caused by this knowledge. Um, so TMT, I would say, was like big enough to be almost like a subfield of social psychology. Um, many, many studies have examined TMT. And so this study looked at um, attempted to replicate sort of a classic uh, terror management study um, and also looked specifically sort of a, took a meta science approach and looked specifically at whether um, expert involvement in the replication protocol design made a difference in whether the study replicated. Right. So you might think, OK, um, yeah, people are trying to replicate these original studies. Um, they're probably using the original paper to figure out what the methodology was. Maybe they're missing a sort of like key ingredient when they run their replications. And this was something that I heard specifically about terror management, right? So I've heard things about like the original terror management labs and how like the experimenters would wear like tie dye and like they there was just like a vibe about those labs that like contributed to getting these effects, right? That's just sort of a, um, something that's like hard to put your finger on um, about how these studies were done that was essential to capturing the effect, right? Um, so in many labs four, um, half of the set of labs that was assigned to try to replicate the original finding was just sort of like left to their own devices, you know, figure out a way to replicate this study. Um, and then half of them were given like access to expert feedback. Um, so then um, I guess should we, oh, I, I do want to talk a little bit about the like specifics of the study design because I think the, that terror management studies are really interesting. So again, the idea with terror management is that um, this sort of like uh, 
maybe subconscious or or like latent fear about our own death um, motivates us to reinforce our own worldviews as like a way of like establishing a legacy or something like that. Um, so often the way that the studies are designed is that <clears throat> there's some kind of like reminder about our inevitable demise. And then um, people are asked questions that, you know, like assess their um, motivation to reaffirm their own worldview or their own way of life or something like that. Um, so this specific study that was replicated um, compares two conditions. So in one, uh, participants are asked to <clears throat> think about or write about the emotions that they experience when they think about their own death, right? So it's a this is a condition known as like a mortality salience condition. Um, and then in the control condition, participants are asked to write about the emotions they experience when they're watching TV. And the dependent variable is um, participants read two essays, one that is pro-America and one that is anti-America. Uh, and these are American participants. And so the dependent variable is sort of like how much favoritism they give to the pro-America versus anti-America essay. Um, the idea being that the more participants sort of favor the pro-American versus anti-American essay, the more they're reinforcing their American way of life um, as a reaction to um, the mortality salience manipulation. Okay, I've been talking a lot. Um, what did you think of this um, many labs? That was a great summary. Um, I cannot... I think explain to people who were not around during this time, which I would say was like roughly 2004 to 2008, how much everything at the time was about terror management theory. Like you would go to SPS, but it seemed like half of the posters were about terror management theory. It was just uh -huh. everywhere. Uh -huh. Like it's just an explosion of terror management theory stuff. And then it kind of even before this just sort of receded and now you like barely see it, which is mm -hmm. also kind of weird, right? We were like obsessed with this for a period of like three to five years. And then we sort of moved on to other things. It seems very odd. Um, but, but yeah, it was a huge deal and there were a ton of studies and a ton of studies reporting positive results. Um, at the same time, also this kind of mystique about, well, you know, in order to get it, you have to like, the vibe has to be right, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if we said the finding of Mini Labs 4, which is that they didn't replicate mortality salience effects yeah, at all. At so all. Expertise. They, actually, their conclusion, well, within the abstract, they say... Um, our results were non-diagnostic of whether original author involvement improves replicability because we were unable to replicate the finding under any conditions. This suggests that the original finding was either a false positive or the conditions necessary to obtain it are not fully understood or no longer exist. Um, very diplomatic, I would say. <laughs> yes, seriously. So I think that they actually did think that this would work under some conditions, because like otherwise, like they say, you don't really have a test of the idea, like not a very good one anyway. Or, I mean, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's not, that it's not diagnostic at all. I mean, I think it does tell you that in this case, author involvement doesn't matter. And that's something to know. Author involvement might matter sometimes, but you, my interpretation here is like, 
original authors can't manifest an effect when it doesn't exist. Right. Exactly. Exactly. They don't have some special magic that that makes the effect happen, right? Um, so, yeah, I think they would have been happier had they gotten it um, uh, in some cases and not in others. And mm-hmm. I, I, I know that this, so this ended up in Calabra, a journal that I, you know, am involved with COI disclosure and really like and think is a great outlet, mm-hmm. but, it, but it's not the highest profile journal that you can imagine a paper like this ending up in. Yeah. Right. And I think if they had a finding that's like, here, it's here, it works and here it doesn't. And we can show that the author involvement helped it replicate, like that would have been an easier sell to a higher profile journal. So I don't think they're particularly happy that they got mortality salience nowhere. But man, this is like scary to me because it really suggests that like with priming as another example, we might have these like completely null subfields. So these subfields where there was just this enormous amount of research activity, um, a ton of positive results, and it's entirely illusory. It's just like nothing there in reality. Right. Which is particularly scary because, I mean, a a seemingly sensible response to failed replications um, or to doubts about the sort of, um, I guess, like robustness of findings in the in the field in social psychology specifically is to say, well, like there are some areas where so many studies have been done and so many positive effects have been found that surely we can't doubt the robustness of those findings, right? And TMT is certainly one of them. Like, I was just trying to sort of grab from the paper the number of studies that cite um, this original paper. Um, I can't find it right now, but like over a thousand, certainly. Um, And I would suspect that over a thousand papers have been published reporting positive effects, like positive mortality salience effects. And so you would think that you could conclude from that okay, this effect must be real. This this must be based on on something, um, something that like some fundamental truth and maybe there's variability in how it looks in different samples or in different um, operationalizations and things like that. Um, and I mean, I would say now I don't I don't think that that's true. Like I would, be very skeptical of anyone trying to measure terror management theory, um, like that theoretical framework in any way. I mean, if somebody, I guess, came up with like a plausible reason why a different operationalization was better, but you'd have to then revise the theory, I think. You'd ha- you'd, you'd end up having to come up with a different theory. Um, so yeah, a study like this, for me, um, is a pretty daunting challenge to the idea that just because there's like a big subfield out there with many replications that doesn't necessarily mean that that effect is reliable. Yeah. So I think it highlights to me that our intuitions here are just not very good. Uh And you know what you just said, oh, there's so many studies, there must be something there. It is essentially, it's an appeal to intuition. You know, that's not like a mathematical proof. It's just intuitively, it seems like if there's a lot of positive results, there must be some underlying effect, right? Right. I should clarify too that I'm so I'm taking these replications seriously, but I'm saying, oh, we shouldn't um we shouldn't assume that a lot of replications in the literature is good evidence that an effect is real. And the I guess the important distinction there is what people commonly refer to as the distinction between a direct and conceptual replication. So the replications that are published in the field are often conceptual. They often vary something 
um, from the original finding. Um, sometimes they may be direct also, but they have the distinction from... So one thing that distinguishes the many lab studies and I think makes their findings much more trustworthy is that they are um, pre-registered um, and often have very large samples. So... Uh, I'm more likely to look at a many lab study and trust the results of those replications than I am just sort of like any study that's already been published in the literature um, that finds the same effect as the original researchers, either using a conceptually different paradigm or using the same one. Um, because those studies that are published in the literature are subject to publication bias, first of all, and also often aren't pre-registered. So um, might also, uh, there might be some p-hacking involved and things like that. Yeah. So like the same effect ought to be put in quotation marks, right? They do something that's right. conceptually related, but usually not a direct replication. And this should really make you worry about meta-analysis as well, right? right? Yeah. Like a meta-analysis that takes um, a bunch of small, not pre-registered studies that are kind of loosely looking at the same thing, throws all of those studies into a blender and says, okay, what's the you know weighted average effect size? Like, it's going to tell you the wrong thing. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes it hard to learn things from the literature <laughs> really without pre-registered studies. <laughs> yes. It's not an ideal situation. Um so anything more to say about this one before we go on to the last one? Oh, I did just have a question for you, which is when I've talked about terror management theory with people who are not psychologists, I feel like I get really different responses in terms of how plausible they think it is. So some people are like, yeah, I mean, my death is like this thing that haunts me. And uh, I mean, maybe not necessarily the idea that like, oh, yeah, I obviously respond by defending my worldview. Um, but they feel like thinking about their death is something that, um, is like disturbing to them and that poses like an existential threat and, um, might affect their behavior. And then there are other people who are like, I never consider my death. I don't worry about it at all. And, and maybe that's a little bit removed from terror management theory, because I guess part of terror management theory suggests that this threat is not always like conscious. But my question for you, Yoel, is do you worry about your death? Do I? Um, it, not in the abstract. Uh, sometimes I worry about specific ways in which I could die. Like I uh -huh. went for a hike in Spain and we were hiking along this very sheer edge of a cliff. And I was like, if I would just slip over this, I would totally be dead. Mm -hmm. And that that did worry me. I'll admit, I did not I did not like that experience of being so close to the edge of the cliff. Uh -huh. Do I wake up at night worrying about my own death? No, not really. Um, I If I have worries, it's about like aging out of things that I want to do. Uh, uh -huh. so, but, but death isn't really that, – that's not really on the table for me. What about you? Uh, I think my answer is very similar. So I don't – I don't have those worries in any kind of abstract sense other than, yeah, maybe thinking there's like a limited amount of time. And so I should try to like fit all the stuff that I can in. Um, I, I would also say that I'm getting like a little bit more risk averse um, as I get older. Um, having a motorcycle is less appealing to me than it used to be. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, your hiking story, like I, 
over Christmas, I went skiing with Megan and I haven't been skiing since I was like a kid or maybe like a teenager. Um, Megan's a pretty good skier. And so she was like, you know, encouraging me to try the hard stuff. And we, um, we went down a black diamond hill and I thought that I might die. <laughs> oh my God. This is how people fuck themselves up skiing. You shouldn't let her peer pressure you. <laughs> but she was so, she was so supportive. She was like, you well, can do it. That's, that's sweet. But you know, is she going to like, I don't know if you'd use soup through a straw for six months while you're recovering oh God, yeah. from your. I just kept thinking like, didn't Sonny Bono die in a skiing? That's action? right. Right into a tree. You know, my strategy is just to go down the green and fall down a lot. And I can recommend that to you. That sounds, that sounds like what I'll be doing from now on. So you got my Sonny Bono reference, but not my 50 Cent reference. Yeah. I see what's happening. Yeah, exactly. There's a demographic thing going on here. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, the thing about TMT is it does have like an aspect of like reasonableness to it where you're like, oh yeah, people are afraid to die. I get that. That makes sense. But then if you like, if you look at like the actual components of the theory and how it's supposed to work, it's so, there's so, there's so many moving parts of there's this existential dread that would be overwhelming, but we turn to these defense mechanisms in order to subdue it. And if we didn't have them, we would be absolutely paralyzed by the terror of death. And, you know, it's the fact that you think of, uh, I don't know, the U.S. as being something that you're part of that goes on after you die, that keeps this stuff at bay, then you're like, well, but that now starts to seem a little less uh, plausible, right? It's it's really in the specifics where you're like, eh, at least for me, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, when you start to look at the way, I mean, this is so commonly the case, right? When you start to look at what's actually being done in the studies, you're like, oh, this is, this feels a lot different than the like general idea of uh, people not wanting to die. Right. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's exactly the same with ego depletion, where it's like, yeah, people get tired. I get that. And then you look at the studies and you're like, ah, now it's feeling less plausible. Uh-huh. Right. One, um, I should have looked more closely at the at the um, many labs for to see if they accounted for this. But I noticed like, so the DV, um, how people rate the author of a pro versus anti-American essay, that strikes me as something like the the assumption that American participants would generally be pro-America seems unlikely to be true right now, but I wouldn't be surprised if they took that into account. Yep, yep. So that's something that the uh, the author-advised version definitely took into account. Right. Uh, so they, they made the anti-America essay more extreme, such that they, they do get a main effect, such that people rate the pro-America essay writer more positively. Mm -hmm. um, even these undergraduates. Uh, and then they also do some analyses where they select the people who highly identify as Americans. So the people who are quite patriotic, right, right. they try it just with them. And basically, you know, none of those things really make a difference. Um, they don't get significant evidence for the effect in any of those analyses. But still like, so with the intensely anti-American essay, they still get a main effect of the essay where they do. their participants are like, okay, I like this pro-American person better. Yep. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. 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 It's just the circles you hang out in where you can't imagine what kind of anti-American essay could actually turn people off. Yeah. Know? The circles that I run in where people like can't yeah. pay for their dental surgery or they're, like... <laughs> they're getting shot all the time. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. You can't imagine an essay that would be too negative. <laughs> all like, right. 
So, um, last many labs. Um, this this one I feel like is almost most explicitly a response to critiques of the uh, reproducibility project psychology, yeah. right? This project from um, Brian Nosek's lab as well, where they selected a hundred studies um, and and tried to replicate them. Um, because in that in that project, there were in the RPP that is there were some studies where the original author said, eh, "I don't think you did a good job of implementing." Mm -hmm. um these uh these studies and and these were all non-replications um uh or or sorry um only one of the studies where the authors had concerns then in the rpp then replicated and so right. what they did in many labs five is they took um 10 studies uh i think there was like they tried to do 11 but they could only end up doing 10 um these were studies where the original authors had raised concerns um and then they did uh they came up with revised protocols for those studies based on peer review. So basically they put those protocols through um, a full peer review process uh, before collecting any data. And the peer, peer reviewers or, you know, obviously area experts said, you know, um, make such and such changes to the protocols. And then they ran the uh, revised protocols and the original ones that have been done in the RPP. And so the idea here is, you know, does peer review make things better? Like, are you more likely to replicate the original effect if area experts have reviewed the protocol? So I, I think of it as another expertise test. Yeah. Like, can experts tell you what to do in order to make it more likely that you replicate? And uh, it seems like not really is the finding. Yeah, it seems like that. And so, like, taking taking the five many lab studies together, I mean, you said that this one strikes you as sort of like the most obvious as like a response to a criticism of replications. But in some ways I look at these, this set of, um, the set of projects and it seems like a really like impressive point by point takedown of any kind of criticism of replications as a source of information about effects. So first it's like, oh, I don't know how seriously we should take your replication because you used a different sample or you did it in a different country. And like many labs one and many labs two are like, nope. Um, and then it's like, oh, well, maybe it's because you did it at a different time of the semester or something like that. Many Labs 3 is like, nope. And then it's like, okay, well, maybe you don't actually know what you're doing, you know? So maybe you don't have the expertise, you know, you're not an original researcher or you didn't, you, you've never run a study in this field and you haven't gotten any experts to review your protocol. And then Many Labs 4 and Many Labs 5 say no to that as well. So I would say that the like overall, I mean, I'm not sure if many labs necessarily like had an agenda to find these things. So like, as you noted, I think that there are times when um, people would have been excited to, for instance, find that expertise matters or that there are at least some circumstances when a particular effect replicates. Um, but overall, I would say that the, the conclusion is um, you should take replications seriously. And all of these like reasons that you've given for not taking replications seriously in the past um, we have empirical evidence to suggest that those don't hold up. Yeah, and I don't think that uh, the the folks who worked on these were like ideologically axe grinding or anything. I think it's reasonable that people had these critiques, particularly um, about early replication studies of the RPP. And then you're like, yeah, I want to take those critiques seriously. Let's test them. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is exactly what you should do if you're taking your critics seriously. Yeah. Well, okay. Empirically, does this criticism seem like it has merit? And overall, for the things that they 
tested here, yeah, it seems like the kind of the easiest or most obvious criticisms that you have of field replications just don't seem to hold up empirically, at least in the kind of studies that they they looked at across these projects. Um, one thing that interested me uh, is that uh, so in the the last. Uh, Minilabs, Minilabs 5, uh, they found very similar effect sizes between the original and the peer-reviewed protocols. But remember, there were there were 10 replications, replication studies in the RPP um, that the authors objected to, um, and they didn't reproduce the original results. When you put together the data from the original studies and the RPP and the two versions of the protocols run by um, this many labs, then you do get significant um, P less than 0.05 replications for, for four of the 10. So it seems like aggregating a bunch of data, like it does help you replicate these original effects. Although like here again, we're in the world of yeah. the replication estimate of the effect size is so different from the original that you're like, is this the same thing? And 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 just looking at the the estimates, like they have sort of a forest plot in the paper, like for almost all of the ones where uh, they eventually ended up coming out on the right side of the of, of zero, um, it seems like the estimates of the effect bounce around a lot. Sometimes they're like negative, sometimes they're positive, and it's it almost seems like just by chance they happen to average out to be a little greater than zero. And the mm-hmm. one exception. To that, interestingly, was this paper Crosby et al. 2008, um, where it looks like the point estimates are actually really similar, and aggregating just shrinks the confidence intervals down such that in the aggregation, you then observe a, a significant effect. And that one, I was like, oh, that seems weirdly different from the other ones. And I looked it up, and that's this is actually a very like clever study where basically you have people observe what they think is um, a Skype call between some other people, some other students. And at some point, uh, one of the other students says something negative about affirmative action. And there's one of the people on the Skype call is black. And the question is, when you think that the black person can hear the comment, do you look at him more? Which, like, I find to be very intuitive that that would happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, uh, But at the same time, I also find it, plausible that that's a really noisy thing to measure right because you're mm-hmm. looking at like you know where i guess you have to do it with an eye tracker where are people actually looking so so i can i that one seems like in retrospect like a good case for yeah you know maybe it was just really noisily estimated but there is something there right yeah yeah, yeah. um what do you think of this like so do you think typically when you take I don't know. Are do you think that some of these um, effects that are really small but significant? Um, what do you think that means? Do you think that that means that the effect is just small, or do you think that that means something less meaningful, like it's like crud, or um, there's some kind of uh, confound or something like that? Yeah. So I I worry. Um... I guess CRUD technically, you know, it's more thought of as applying to correlational studies, but Mm -hmm. I worry about people building in small confounds. Like they have an intuition Mm -hmm. um, about how to design stimuli. And some of that good experimenter intuition is being able to build in undetectable confounds. Yeah, totally. 
Yeah. So like when it's, yeah, yeah the, the effect size in the, in the replication is so much smaller than the original. I worry that like lots of things could produce that tiny difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like maybe in, well, the terror management theory, I, they weren't getting these small effects at all. Um, but yeah, you could imagine a lot of differences between a, like, think about the emotions associated with your death and think about the emotions associated with watching TV. Like you could you could imagine that there are some confounds there, that there are going to be differences between the emotions that you report in those two conditions that are not only attributable to the difference between thinking about your death and not, right? So maybe TV introduces something like people are typically thinking of a certain kind of show, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that's true of, I would say, most uh, experimental studies. Like, it's hard to manipulate only exactly what you're interested in. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, so like the fact that for this study of mine that was replicated in the second many labs that they got very, very weak evidence for that interaction. Like, what does that mean? I I honestly have no idea. Like, and it could just be a fluke. Like my intuition is in like that big a sample, if it's P less than 0.01, it's probably just a false positive, like a true false positive. Um, but assuming that it's not, I, I have no idea what to do with so tiny a difference, right? I, I feel comfortable saying whatever that is, it's not what our theory predicted. Right, right. All right. Well, um, I feel like this has been a fun tour down many labs memory lane. Yeah. Yeah. It's the end of an era, you know? I know. Final takeaway, Yoel study, false positive. <laughs> That's right. P-hacker. 